We left off at the end of John chapter 15, but I don't feel like I'm ready for John chapter 16. And besides, we'll be picking up at Romans 10. Just kind of go through this chapter. I've been recently thinking about Romans 9 and just trying to capture not just the flow of thought, but kind of a lot of the implications in there and wrap that up and then shift it over to chapter 10, doing the same there. Uh, Both chapters, he starts off with the statement of having a great desire that Israel would be saved. Chapter 9, Paul expresses a great grief in his heart because the children of Israel are outside of the blessing that God has brought to the church. The nation of Israel... Throughout the Old Testament, God had selected them to be his people and uh, had put upon them his blessing, and he had provided a way so that they could draw near to him as a people and not be destroyed. And, uh, And so when Christ came and when the gospel came, there were many of the Israelites who got saved initially, in the, but it was only in the thousands. It wasn't the tens or hundreds of thousands of Jews. So the majority of the Jewish nation did not receive Christ. And in fact, they turned to be the most bitter enemies against Christianity. The persecution against the church for the longest time was the Jews headed it up. They would stir up the Romans and stir up whatever power they could, and they would go after the Christians. So not only did they not get saved, but they were adamantly opposed to the gospel. And Paul, uh, being that they are his fellow nationals, uh, his family members, he's brokenhearted because they they are pursuing God through the mosaic, uh, the the religious rituals that were given to them by Moses. They're pursuing God in that way but they, were com- they completely rejected their Messiah. <clears throat> before we go any further, let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Father, we come before you this morning and a couple things that we want to bring before you. We think of the Louis Brands and the, and the uh, accident that Steve has been in. I don't know uh, how, um, how traumatic that has been for him as far as emotionally, knowing that the other driver was passed away. But definitely a lot of trauma in his leg and the physical uh, portion of his body. We just pray that you would be with them, encourage and strengthen them, and and uh, big, you know big changes in their lives. And just ask for your comfort and help for them, and that you would provide for their needs. And then the other thing we want to ask for your blessing as we look into your word to be able to appreciate and find these truths relevant to our lives <clears throat> and appreciate the things that you've done. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so chapter 10 also opens with Paul saying, uh, right, off the, right in the first verse, if I can get that page turned, <clears throat> Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel <clears throat> excuse me, is that they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So both chapters, he opens up with that expression of longing for the children of Israel to be saved. The chapter 9 is the sorrow. Chapter 10 is the longing for their salvation. In chapter 9, the question, I don't know that he explicitly states it, but the question becomes, how is it that these people are not saved? <clears throat> Particularly since the children of Israel were the people of God. God had given them his word. He'd given them the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and all these different things. They were the people of God throughout the Old Testament. How is it that the people of God have are not uh, in with the church? How come they're on the outside And so chapter 9 really dives into how it was that they became the people of God because that's the first thing that is necessary to understand and why they weren't part of salvation. And he shows that they became the people of God by God's deliberate choice. God had selected them as a nation and they were to be his people. And uh, it really had nothing to do with who they were as a nation as far as their personalities as far as how they reacted to god or what what their desire what kind of what kind of people they were you know that their characteristics as a nation had nothing to do with why god selected them to be his people and so as a result although they were god's people they were a mixed group there was a lot who had they were as cold-hearted to god as the gentiles there was some there who were truly children of God, but there were a majority of them that were not the children of God. He uses different illustrations to show that, uh, you know, showing how, like with Jacob and Esau, when Jacob was selected to be the one that the promise would be given on, it was it was while they were still in the womb. Jacob hadn't done anything yet. There was nothing about Jacob <clears throat> that would make him more eligible for the selection than Esau. God had simply made the choice that the younger would be the one who would receive the blessing, the younger twin. And in the same, so so the nation of Israel was granted a greater blessing than other nations, even though they weren't better than other nations. There was, you know, they were no different, really, than the other nations as far as their characteristics. But God granted upon them an extra measure of blessing. And then the last half of chapter 9 dives into the question of whether or not that's right for God to do. If you've got say the Egyptians on one hand and the Israelites on the other hand, and God almost arbitrarily decides that he's going to pour out blessing on the Israelites, is that right for God to do? Can he? Is it okay for him to pour out an extra measure of blessing and mercy upon one group of people and, not, and just ignore the others, so to speak, even though, you know, he, <clears throat> if you take the Egyptians, there's a lot of unsaved people there. Some of them believed in God, a lot of unsaved. But you take the Israelites, there's a lot unsaved there. Some of them believe in God. But he poured out extra measure of blessing on the nation of Israel. And his extra measure of blessing didn't make more of them saved. They still were a bunch of them that wasn't saved. But they were had a greater level of blessing than the Egyptians. And so the last half of chapter 9 explores whether or not that's right for God to do. And he shows how it is right for God to do that. That God can, if he's got one group of stubborn people... He can show extra measure of mercy upon that group of stubborn people in order to demonstrate his the level of his mercy towards people who are stubborn. 
And then he can take another group of people, say the Egyptians, and he can show an extra measure of wrath on them, on stubborn people, so that they can become a demonstration to the world of God's wrath towards stubbornness, towards people that hold on to their stubborn nature. So you got two groups of stubborn people. One, he demonstrates his mercy to the world so that people will be saved. And one, he demonstrates his wrath to the world so that people will turn from their sin. And it's... Uh, it's, it, he, Paul points out that's perfectly fine for God to do. If you've got stubborn people who are going to, because of their stubbornness, they're going to go into a lost eternity. If you want to make one a vessel of mercy and the other one a vessel for wrath, that's perfectly fine, especially when the intent is so that people will be saved. So that was chapter 9. It was asking a question of, you know, why aren't they saved? How is it that the people of God are not saved? And he goes to show that the people of God in the Old Testament there was a bunch of them that were not the children of God, and that's why they didn't enter into salvation. They weren't, in their hearts, they weren't God's people. Physically, they were. Now in chapter 10, he's asking kind of the same question. Why aren't they saved? But here he's going to look at <clears throat> why it is that the nation of Israel has not entered into salvation. What has prevented them from entering into salvation? And he's going to look at it from the perspective of there's two possibilities, two, two major reasons why they might not be saved. It could be, possibly, that God has not allowed them or brought them into salvation. Like God has done something that has put them at a disadvantage so that they do not enter into salvation. So it could be God's fault. Or it could be Israel's fault, that they simply for whatever reason, haven't wanted salvation. And he's going to look at those two possibilities as he works his way through chapter 10 and find out which it is. Why is it that Israel hasn't been saved? So he opens uh, with that desire that he he longs to see them saved. And then he tells us, which is, is probably helpful for these people to see that Israel did have a zeal for the things of God. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, although not according to knowledge. It might have been hard for the believers to see that at the time because they were being so heavily persecuted by the Jews. Uh, All they would see was that these Jews, for whatever reason, they hate the Christians and they keep on coming after us and we go to different towns and they follow us into there and they stir up the magistrates against us and they keep on taking away our property. They just run us from one place to another and they don't. It's like they want us dead. And so the Christians would say, these people are such an evil people. They're so wicked, so far from God. And Paul's reminding them, well, actually, they have a zeal for the things of God. They're trying to serve God. It's just they've kind of got it all wrong. And we can understand what Paul is saying. They did have a zeal for God. They they did their feasts. They kept their Sabbaths. They stayed away from unclean foods. They they did the sacrifices. They had that priesthood. This was... I mean, and they were they were careful to follow those things. It wasn't like in the days of the Old Testament when they had turned from God into blatant idolatry and they had gotten their own sacrifices and they, they entered into wickedness. It wasn't like that. They were actually pursuing after righteousness. They were trying to really get themselves pure so that they could that they could draw near to God. And he says they, they've just they've got this all 
in their zeal for serving God, they've actually become enemies of God. But understand that they've got zeal to, to serve a God. But he says that they are, really what they're doing is they're looking for righteousness. They're trying to, to make themselves, to purify themselves. Why would they want to be righteous? Well, throughout the Old Testament history, they had learned that if you wanted to draw near to God, you had to be righteous. You couldn't be full of uncleanness and wickedness and walk into the presence of God. Anybody who did that, who was who dared to come into the presence of God while being wicked and unclean, they would die. So the key to drawing near to God is righteousness. You had to be righteous in order to draw near to God. And I think that's something that we have learned through them as well. That righteousness is required. He doesn't take sin into his presence. The wicked, when God comes before the wicked, the wicked had better tremble because he doesn't tolerate sin in his presence. And I think we need to understand that the law was given to them, righteous commands and so forth, that was given to them so that they could become righteous, so that they could come before God. Now, uh, I think a lot of times, at least for me, my tendency is to think, well, you can't become righteous by the law. Because we've got that passage like in Galatians that we thought about this morning. And Galatians was at the end of chapter 2, where Paul points that we are not justified by the law. That is, you can't be made righteous by the law or justified in the sight of God. And of course, Paul is talking in Galatians, he's talking in the sense of absolute justification, that when you, you're both, uh, you are presented not, well, I should back up a little bit. He talks about absolute justification. Now, under the law, you could be made righteous if you kept the commands of the law. For example, if you follow the Ten Commandments, you would no longer be guilty of murder or adultery or bearing false witness. You would be doing what was right instead of what was wrong. So under the law, you could attain righteousness, but it was righteous actions. And this is what the Pharisees did is they pursued after that. They, would, they pursued after a righteous type of a lifestyle so that on the outside, they looked absolutely spotless. And Jesus told them that. He said, you guys have cleanse the outside a ditch, but you've forgotten about the inside. When Paul was talking about justification, he was noting that you can't be purified inside and outside through the works of the law. You can keep the law to the nth degree and then come before God and still find yourself condemned because of the evil inside of your own heart. We know that God looks on the heart as well as the outside. And if the heart is full of evil, you're going to be destroyed as much as somebody who is full of evil actions will be destroyed, a wicked person. So the Israelites were pursuing after that righteousness from the law. They wanted to purify, but it only could purify the outside. It couldn't purify the heart. They could not be truly, absolutely justified. They could only be justified, so to speak, in their actions. And that's not enough. Now, again, the reason that they're pursuing after this righteousness is because they want to be able to draw near to God. And Paul says in their zeal to pursue after this righteousness, they have 
They have neglected, they have turned away from the righteousness. He says they have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Um, the Jews under the law, in order to draw near to God, they needed to purify themselves, purify their actions in order to draw near to God. But once Christ comes and and the the good news of his sacrifice for our sin is presented, and you go to him and you find forgiveness of sin and complete mercy, you are brought near to God on the spot. You don't have to purify yourself or to cleanse all your actions or get rid of all your evil attitudes. You're to... You're like you're you're already brought near to God as soon as you're in Christ. And this is the thing that the Jews couldn't grab hold of or didn't grab hold of. They didn't they didn't recognize that if you if you were in Christ, you were already near to God. So there's no need then to work through the law to purify your outward actions so that you can get near to God. You're already near God. That's why Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The whole purpose to try to gain righteousness is to draw near God. When you come to Christ, you're justified on the spot, and you're brought near to God instantaneously. No need for further purification by the law in order to draw near God. So Paul points out that they are pursuing righteousness, but it's only the righteousness by the law, and they have not submitted to that righteousness that one can find in Christ. And he continues in verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring up Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So verse 5, when he says Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does these things shall live by them. The context of that passage, and it's I think it's in Leviticus someplace, um, yeah, Leviticus chapter 18. The context of that is uh, Moses describing to them, the, to the Israelites, the new life that they would have under the law. God said to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Okay, so there's a light, there's a couple lifestyles that you can select from. The Jews that sorry, there's a couple lifestyles that the Israelites could select from. The lifestyle of the Egyptians or the lifestyle of the Canaanites. And God's saying, Don't live like they do. He says, instead, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments 
which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So if they would, basically he's telling them, if you keep these commandments, you will be able to dwell around God. You'll be able to live with God. And since God is the God of life, I mean, that's, that's where life is going to be at. So you faithfully keep these commands, you'll be able to live in the presence of God. If you live like the Egyptians and the Canaanites, you're going to be cut off from God. And you will live a life of death, being cut off from the source of life. So to live, keep these commands, and you can be in the presence of God. <clears throat> and that's that's what they were. The Jews were still pursuing after. Now he begins to talk about this righteousness of faith and how it speaks. He says, "Do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven.'" <clears throat> Paul is referencing. Uh, what Moses was telling the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says in chapter 30, verse 11, This commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you shall say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. And then he goes on to say, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. So Paul is alluding to this. This was as Moses' final words to the children of Israel before he died. And he's telling them, look, you have that choice of a life. Either you can live like the Canaanites and the Egyptians and die, or you can, or you should follow the Lord's commands so that you may live. But he wanted them to know that the commands that the Lord gives them, it's not like a secret code where you have to have an extraordinary uh, level of intelligence to be able to understand so that you can actually keep these commands the way that they're intended to be kept. Of course, (laughs) by the time Jesus got there, they had all those writings of the rabbinic, of the rabbis, and it did seem like almost a secret code that nobody could really understand or really follow after. But originally it was not so. When Moses gave it to him, he said, this is really a straightforward command. This is not something that you need some supernatural ability to understand. You don't need to have the ability to go up into heaven to be able to grasp these commands and bring them back down. Which is interesting that he says that because Moses went up to the top of the mountain, remember, up to like the edge of heaven, so to speak, where God was at and grabbed the commands and brought them back down. The Israelites didn't need to do that. Moses had brought them down to them. And then he says, you don't have to go across the sea. And remember, they had been in Egypt and they had to cross the Red Sea but they were crossed the Red Sea now and they've been brought to Mount Sinai. They didn't need to cross. I mean, it was like the commands were right in their hand. And they were straightforward and clear and simple like Hebrew, not English, but simple, straightforward Hebrew <clears throat> that they could read and they could follow. This law that they were to follow that was to bring them into life was not something, some mysterious secret or far off. It was right there in their hands, in their hearts on their mouth. It was right there. 
That's the way they understood the law, and now Paul is alluding to that, and he's saying the righteousness by faith is very much the same way. You don't have to say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring... You don't need some supernatural ability to go up and get the Savior from heaven and bring Him down so that you can be able to live before God. You don't have to be able to, and he says, descend into the abyss, whereas in the Old Testament it's cross the Red Sea. But the same thought is there. You don't have to go dive down into the deepest depth to find that source of life and bring it back up, to, you know, that is, to raise Christ from the dead. All of that's been done. Christ has come down. Christ has raised from the dead. And it wasn't you that did it, and it isn't you that needs to do it. You don't need this supernatural ability in order to provide what is needed to have that righteousness of faith so that you can draw near God. You don't have to... The supernatural ability part of it has already been taken care of. You just... It's just a simple word now. That is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. He says in verse uh, verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord who is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This word of faith is so simple and so plain and so straightforward that Paul can express it in just a couple lines. The law was very simple and straightforward, but it did take about three or four books to kind of lay it out before you. That's still pretty simple compared to all the mysteries of God and, and the things that you... You know, when you read, the, you read the writings of Job as Job tries to piece through the workings of God. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you're still quite, not quite sure which way is up. So mysterious. But the law is pretty straightforward. This is what's right, and it's right all the time. And this is what's wrong, and it's wrong all the time. But the word of faith is even more plain and more simple. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I don't know, I've heard, you know, at camps and stuff like that, this is a a verse that a lot of preachers like to go to to be able to share the gospel because it's so simple and straightforward. But I've noticed recently that this is a very different presentation of the gospel than what you often see in the New Testament. Because there's no mention, there's no mention of sin here. There's nothing about repenting from sin and finding your sins forgiven. That's kind of unique. Most of the time when the gospel is presented throughout the New Testament, there's always a connection with sin. That's the key part. But here, not so much. And I think that's because Paul is talking in the context of the Jews who were pious people who were pursuing diligently after God and they were very much pursuing after righteousness through the works of the law. They knew what sin was. They knew what it was to repent. They already had repented of their sin and were pursuing after God. But where they stumbled at was they were were pursuing the righteousness of the law. They stumbled at the righteousness of faith. 
they had a hard time believing that Jesus was the sacrifice for their sin. They knew about the need. They knew about the need for sacrifice of sin and all those things. What they stumbled at was that Jesus was the one that they needed to trust in. And so you'll notice then, this presentation of the gospel very much emphasizes the importance of the. the uh, I don't know how you say it. The, emphasizes like who Jesus is. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And I, I think the, the, uh, what he's saying there is that it's, you could almost say like Jesus says, you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. So for the Jews, they looked at Jesus as just a, a rabbi or maybe a prophet, you know, nobody really special. They resented the fact that he said that he was from God, that he was the son of God, and that he was their Lord. They resented that. So for them to believe in him would require a complete change to acknowledge that he is their Lord. I don't think this is Lordship salvation, but this is an acknowledgement that Jesus is not just a man, he is the Lord. <clears throat> and the Jews, that's where they stumbled at. And to believe in their <clears throat> they needed to believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They didn't acknowledge that. They said that the disciples stole him away, and it was very important for them to recognize that Jesus was raised from the dead because that indicated that he was Lord, that he what he accomplished here on the cross was real and it was legitimate. So I think in using this passage uh, as far as presentation of the gospel, I think we need to be a little bit careful. I think its target audience is people who, uh, you know, people who are like the Jews, the pious Jews who didn't acknowledge Jesus as their Savior. With the heart, he says, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus, they are justified, as he had described in Romans chapter 3 and 4. They are made righteous right on the spot in order to be able to draw near to God. So that the point that the Jews needed to recognize in verse 11, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. They looked at Jesus in his physical appearance, that he was an everyday man. He wasn't even a a royalty or anything like that. Like he was just an average man. And it would be tough to trust in somebody who walked in the same kind of sandals that you walked in or walked on the same roads that you walked on. But the scripture is assuring them that no, you can trust in this one. You will be saved if you trust in him. You will not. uh, Even if your works don't match the requirements of the law, if you're trusting in him, you will be saved. And this is true for all people, both Jews and Gentiles. The same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Jews needed to, to turn from their priesthood, to turn from their sacrifices, their feasts, and call upon Jesus to save them. To not trust anymore in their, their sacrifices and feasts and rituals. To call upon Jesus. And the scripture assured them that if they did they would be saved. 
So that's the word of the gospel, very straightforward, very simple, the word of faith. That's the difference between the righteousness that's in the law versus the righteousness that's in the faith, uh, that's by faith. Uh, There is a distinct difference, and yet the word for faith is very simple and straightforward. So why then, if if it's not too complicated or if it's not too far off, if God hasn't put it out of their reach, or if God hasn't made it so confusing that they can't understand it, but instead he has put it right there and he has laid it out so plain and simple that even a child can understand, then why aren't they saved? All they need to do is call upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> so he dissects the logic of it. If, if salvation comes by calling on the name of the Lord, then in verse 14... How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So they don't call upon, they're not saved because they don't call upon the name of Jesus. Why don't they call upon the name of Jesus? Well, in order to really call on the name of Jesus, you need to believe in him, believe that he is your savior. And they haven't believed. Well, why haven't they believed? Well, he says, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? You know, when, you, <clears throat> when you're presented with something that's new, it's, that's how you usually find out about the new thing, is that it's presented to you. You're not, it doesn't come to you usually by intuition. This, they were not going to just intuitively understand about Jesus. They would need somebody to tell them about it. But who is going to tell them? That's the next question. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? This kind of gets down to the root of it that people, if you're going to go and tell the Jew about something new regarding their God that they have not heard before, they are not going to believe you unless you come from their God. There's Remember, there's zealous seeking after God. You can't just send any old messenger to them and expect them to believe that messenger. You have to send somebody that comes from their God that they are seeking and is demonstrably from their God. Then, I mean, they were told, don't believe in a prophet unless you know for sure he's come from God. So they had to have somebody sent from God who would preach the truth of God that would agree with all the truth that had been revealed in the Old Testament. That person had to also be from God that you could see he came from God. You you would expect to see some kind of signs or something, some way to prove that these men who were sent actually did come from God. Then it would be reasonable to expect the Jews to listen to them and to hear that truth and to believe that truth and then to call upon the upon the Lord Jesus. This is, according to Paul, this is the logical progression of how salvation comes <coughs> comes to a person. So in verse eighteen, he continues, as it is written, "How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things." But they do; they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Okay, so that's just kind of a summary of that little logical progression that he brought us through. In order for them, uh, in order for them to have that, uh, to enter into that faith, so that they can have, you know, they want that righteousness by faith. In order to have the faith, uh, they need to hear, and they need to hear the word of God, not just any messenger. So that's that's the progression. There are some things that the Jews need to do. They need to call upon Jesus. They need to hear the word. There's some things that God needs to do. He needs to send a messenger. He needs to pro- provide the word into the mouth of the messenger. So now we got the first question in verse 18. I say, have they not heard? When God sent the gospel message, did he send it to the Jews or did he send it to some other place where they didn't hear about it? You know, this interesting thing was that when Jesus was going through the land of Israel, there were some Jews that had never heard of Jesus or of John the Baptist. Uh, by the time, even after Jesus' ministry was done, some of the Jews had never even heard of Jesus. You know, remember Paul came across some of those believers that he was talking to these Jews who had been baptized by John, but they had not heard about Jesus. So when Jesus came, it wasn't wasn't like an all-media event where it was proclaimed throughout all the world. There were parts of the world where they didn't know about Jesus. But as far as the gospel message, he says their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So the message, God was faithful in taking the message and spreading it throughout the entire world. All the places where the Jews were scattered, God took that message The point is that when God God the point is that God did send messengers to talk to the children of Israel and explain to them the truth. And he sent those messengers all over the place. So there's no way that the Jews didn't hear the gospel. Well, then he raises another question. He says, Well, he says, I say, did Israel not know? Uh, you know, when the message comes to them. Was it so far removed from anything that they knew that there was no way they could they could believe it? It was just too radical, too far removed from what they understood under the law of Moses. But Paul quotes uh, a uh, quotes a verse out of Deuteronomy 32. He says, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. In Deuteronomy 32, that was the song that that the Lord told Moses to teach the children of Israel. This was the I think in Deuteronomy 32, like either last chapter or next to last chapter, the last thing that Moses delivered to the children of Israel was this song, and the purpose of the song. find it here the purpose of the song now therefore says the Lord write down this song for yourselves teach it to the children of Israel put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel he says basically I'm going to take them into the land they are going to break my covenant I want them to know this song so that they will have something 
It's kind of like a see I told you so type of thing. I want them to have no excuse for turning from me. So in that song, he talks about what God had done for them and delivering them out of the land of Egypt and how he brought them into the promised land and so forth. And then he describes how he said, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you were obese. Basically, you enjoyed the blessings and you became so bloated in these blessings that you basically kicked out against me. You didn't, if I called you to do something, you said no. And he said, you provoked, he said, they provoked him. to. Just, and these things hadn't happened yet. These were things that were going to happen. And the Israelites were taught this song so that when these things happened, they would see, oh, this is exactly what Moses told us was going to take place. We were going to kick out against God. We were going to provoke him to jealousy with foreign gods. He said, they, he said, you grew fat, you grew obese, you forsook the God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. You would reject the salvation that you provided. And then he goes on and he says, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by the foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. This is the part that Moses quotes, or that Paul quotes up here. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Paul is referencing this last song or this song that Moses taught the children of Israel that was intended to be a witness against them. It was a song that was going to tell them that, look, you guys are going to grow fat, kick against God, reject his salvation, and he's going to take the blessing from you and he's going to give it to other nations so that you are moved to jealousy, so that you turn back to him. Was this gospel message so radical that Israel could not believe it? No. The very song that they were to never forget, let them know this was coming. And not only that, but then in verse 20, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. So even at the end, towards the end of their history, again, God brings to their face that, look, this blessing of God is going to go out to Gentiles who never sought after God. You guys have been seeking after God, but it's going to leave you and it's going to go for the Gentiles. The, the fact of the matter is that the, the Gentiles had the same messengers coming to them that the Jews had. And those messengers carried the same message to the Gentiles as they did to the Jews. But the Gentiles responded and received and believed and called upon the Lord and the Jews did not and the Jews knew that was going to happen the very song that they weren't supposed to forget and the very prophets told them that this was going to happen God was letting them know from day one to the very end that they were going to run into this situation where their blessing was going to be brought to other people because they weren't calling upon the Savior that God had provided he had done what he could to make them aware of what was going to happen. Now Isaiah also says in verse 21, to Israel he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The point that chapter 10, or the conclusion that chapter 10 comes to, he says, look, 
Israel, uh, they needed to call upon Jesus. They didn't do that. They needed to believe in Jesus. They didn't do that. They needed to hear the message that was delivered to them. And they didn't do that. God needed to send messengers. God did do that. God needed to give them his word. And God did do that. And God even went beyond and told them that this was all going to come down. So if you look at the things that Israel needed to do and the things that God needed to do, you say, well, God gets an A+. He's done everything. Not only did he send the messengers to the children of Israel, but he sent it out to the whole world. Not only, and, and he even went so far as to warn them that this was going to happen, but Israel did nothing of the things that they needed to do to enter into salvation. In other words, Romans 10 concludes, it is not God's fault that Israel is not saved. He has not made the message obscure that would take a supernatural ability for them to understand. He has not hidden the message from them or held it back. He has delivered it to them. He's made it plain and simple. But Israel has simply rejected it. So chapter 9, he said... The reason Israel is not saved is because they are not all the people of God. They're not all children. I'm sorry. They're not all children of God. They were all the people of God, but they were not all children. They have been made the people of God, not because they were children, but because God wanted to use them as a demonstration of his mercy. Chapter 10, he says they're not saved because they have rejected the message, even though God made it available to them, preached it to them, and left it right before them. Now, the one thing I want to draw out of here that I think uh, is good for us to, to learn or to grab hold of is that little statement that he made back in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So I think a lot of times, I mean, the point that he was getting at there, like we talked about, is that you don't, you know, and now that Christ has come, you don't draw near to God by purifying yourself through keeping the law. That's that's not how it's done. The Israelites did that under the Old Testament. They could only purify their outward actions, but it allowed them to some degree to draw near to God, you know, to the temple or the tabernacle, wherever God was dwelling at. But once Christ came, raw sinners, people who were in their like even a, a thief on the cross who had no opportunity to keep the law from that day on. He was going to die. He could be brought near to God through faith in Christ. I think, at least I find in my life, that the tendency, my tendency is to think that I need to purify myself, both my actions and my heart, in order to be able to draw near to God. So if I find something that's amiss inside my heart or something that I'm doing wrong. I feel like there's a big gap between me and God and and the only way I can get near God is if I can take care of this issue of whatever I'm doing or whatever is harbored in my heart. I need to take care of that before I can draw near to God. That's That mentality is the mentality under the law. The thought that you need to purify yourself in order to draw near to God. The reality is, is that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Trusting in him 
if I am as a believer, I find myself with this sin in my heart or something that I'm doing wrong, I have learned that I confess it to him and boom, I'm close to God. Even before I get myself purified. Now the New Testament goes on to talk about having fellowship with God, being able to enjoy life with God. Uh, Being able to enjoy life with God, you can't be living in sin and enjoy life with God. To have fellowship, you need to be cleansed of all sin and unrighteousness. But to draw near Him, to know His favor, His mercy, His, His approval, His drawing you in, His love... To be near to God is through faith in Christ. And uh, for me, it's easy to forget that. And I think it's important to recognize that uh, it's not by making sure we do everything right where we get to be close to God. It's through Christ that we're brought near to God. So may we remember that and be encouraged that, learn that lesson from that the children of Israel did not grab hold of to rest in the truth that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's close. Our Father, we come before you and again thank you for our Savior. As we the struggle in this in this life on earth that we live and the, the sin and with their own struggles in our own heart and so forth and just the confusion and the lies that are all around us we thank you for that clear and simple truth of the gospel that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and we can rest in him and know our full acceptance uh, in him by you so we just thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ in his name amen